welcome to the Transforming Society podcast, which is brought to you by Bristol University Press and Policy Press. In episodes covering a wide range of social issues, we speak to authors and editors about their books and journals to get to grips with the story their research tells and look at specific ways in which it could transform society for the better. My name is Jess Miles. I'm Digital Marketing Manager at Bristol University Press, and I co-present with Rebecca Megson-Smith, writer and writing coach. Hi, Rebecca. Hi, Jess. Hi. Um, In this episode, you spoke to Dr. Nassar Mir about his book, The Cruel Optimism of Racial Justice. What was the key take-home from the conversation for you? Oh, thanks for that, Jess. It was a fantastically rich uh, conversation uh, with Dr. Mir. And uh, and there's so much in there. It's really packed in with um, with some really great insights. But I think the one for me that's uh, that I've carried away from it is this understanding that equal treatment isn't the same as treatment as an equal, which is something that uh, he talks about both in the book and and in the in the podcast. And I think that's a subtle but significantly different way of understanding issues around race and racial justice and understanding why we still continue to see systemic um, injustice uh, within within our society today. That's really interesting. And it sounds like it's going to be a really useful way of looking at the issues. So thank you very much for speaking to him. We hope you enjoy the episode and you can find out more about the book on our website, which is bristoluniversitypress.co.uk. Dr. Nassar Mir is Professor of Sociology in the School of Social and Political Sciences and Director of Race Ed at the University of Edinburgh. He is author of The Cruel Optimism of Racial Justice, which is published by Policy Press and is the subject of our discussion today. The seemingly simple question at the heart of the book is this, what can we learn from the successes and failures that have occurred in the pursuit of racial justice in the UK and elsewhere in the global north? But as this book demonstrates, there is little that is simple when it comes to questions of race and racism. Through multiple lens, including public policy, national identity, justice, health, refuge, Mir spotlights that many everyday unwitting acts of racism continue to occur despite inquiries, investigations, findings and recommendations for change. He shows how it is possible for systemic racist behaviour to remain unchallenged, normalised and unseen through a complex cocktail of silence about the past, as well as a lack of understanding that equal treatment is not the same as treatment as an equal. Thank you so much for being here with me today, Nassar, to help us unravel some of the challenges inherent in the pursuit of racial justice, and hopefully to begin to understand why progress is so slow it can all too easily slide into reverse gear. Hi, Rebecca. It's it's nice to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's dig straight in. Could we start by discussing the meaning and definition of this term, cruel optimism? Yeah, sure. So it comes from the work of the late American writer Lauren Ballant and she was what you might call an affect theorist so she was interested in how in addition to uh, emotions and addition to politics there's a way of organizing and structuring the world that has profound implications. In In the sense of cruel optimism what she was trying to describe was there is a way in which an image of a better or a good life becomes a trap, Uh, it becomes an impasse and we struggle to detach ourselves from what's not already working. And uh, what um, uh, Ballant does with that concept, it's quite complex at times, Um, but she's trying to appeal to a broader story about the development of of American society in particular, but but not only. 
the idea of a good life, you know, what that constitutes and the promise of a good life in uh, a North American post-war um, context has become increasingly unattainable. Um, so I take that, um, the idea that this idea of something better becomes a trap for where we are now and try to apply it to the example of, of racial justice, which is not something that Lauren Ballant um, talks about. Um, and what I want to do with it is to say, well, there's a way in which over a, a long period of time, um, over a number of uh, different events and a number of different movements, we as anti-racists, as community activists, as scholars, researchers, uh, as people involved in public policy have, I suppose, continued with this belief that if we struggle enough, change uh, will come. And what the book shows is that actually lots of change has come, uh, lots of progress has been made, but not in the way in which it's linear, um, insofar as things incrementally getting better with time. The idea of progress um, is something which becomes a bit of a trap within our thinking around racial justice. What happens instead is that we mobilize around particular issues, particular events, and often they become uncoupled from understanding the wider whole. So that's why I talk a lot about social systems in the book, because I want us to be able to understand how racial injustice often occurs in a way in which relies upon um, racial uh, injustice across different spheres, different sectors, um, be that the labor market and how that's related to the education system or be that the criminal justice system and how that's related to the way in which people are represented uh, in public life. Uh, and so if we kind of give up on this idea, this assumption of progress as being linear in time, things getting better, then we can start to challenge the cruel optimism that uh, racial justice is something that's inevitable. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. You, you, you talk about that idea of um, the, the uh, uh, crisis ordinariness and this idea of surface change. So surface changes do happen. And sometimes in the act of those surface changing happening, surface changes happening, the, there's a, the, the, the racial inequality is actually deepened at a more systemic level, which is which is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, that term um, surface, um, thinking about things changing at the surface comes from um, critical race theory traditions in the US and the ways in which they observed that there would be changes in policy, but actually they'd be relatively either after the event or they wouldn't tackle the underlying systemic um, impediments that remained in place. Um, and yeah, um, if you connect that with Lauren Ballant's idea of crisis ordinariness, which she talks about as a genre, and because she's a scholar of you know, literature and the humanities, she thinks about genre in a, in a broad way, not just in a way in which we might think of in fiction, but a way of narrating our present. So we're constantly trapped in this crisis ordinariness. Um, and one of the things I want to say is that for those of us who are, um, involved in trying to highlight the, the racial disparities which um, pervade uh, different sectors in society. We've kind of, you know, to some extent made an uneasy peace with that. Um, and it's not necessarily something which is purely about a single um, event um, at, a, at a single time, but something which over a period of time um, we've tried to 
we've tried to reckon with and to some extent you know persuaded ourselves that you know if we do persevere then things will ultimately uh get better so I, I imagine that you know a number of listeners will recognize in themselves how we've kind of routinely arrived I think at this impasse you know we've perhaps even clung in different ways to the cruel optimism that racism in societies um, can lessen because obviously attitudes are self, self evidently hostile um, in terms of um, traditional forms of racism you know people are much more comfortable with difference um, um, in terms of mixedness they're much more comfortable with the um, the public articulations of you know um, of racial diversity but that remains relatively surface level it hasn't in a way kind of tackled some of the underlying um, racial um, impediments that remain in place and, and and when I say that I, I don't mean to say that you know it's um we're all, we've all been naive. We've all had this kind of misplaced faith in, in a hope for change or kind of being hostage to this. Um, because I think you'd have to have something of an impoverished sense of, of political progress just to think that, you know, speaking truth to power is just one thing. It's, then, it's, it's instead that, you know, that we've, um, we've made a peace with, to some extent, this crisis ordinariness that, um, we, we mobilized um, community struggle researchers, collect data, um, and then we lobby for change in the knowledge that, you know, there is likely to be failure, but that um, that's what we have to do. We have to persevere. Uh, and that's slightly different to what Ballant talks about in, in cruel optimism, because it's almost like a knowing cruel optimism. You're not mm -hmm. being um, necessarily um deceived by your um optimism actually you're you're aware of it and you've kind of made this this peace with it which is not really a kind of a, a trauma but it's something like a um a kind of an undulating pain or discomfort that 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 occupies you um and i imagine a lot of listeners who who, who work in this area will recognize that yeah Thank you. Thank you. It, it, it's interesting. You, you touched a couple of times on um, the US and the fact that Ballon is obviously writing um, from a, a position of, of being in the, in, in the States. Um, uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is particularly, I think, when the Black Lives Matter protests were really at their height. One of the uncomfortable things, to be honest, that I would hear being said around me was this idea that racism, oh, it's just so, it's so much worse or it's more prevalent in the US than it is in the UK. And um, I, I was wondering if you could speak to the sort of the structures and systems that maintain and sustain this yeah. kind of, I suppose, complacent thinking. Yeah, I mean, that's quite a common question. And it really depends on the on the touchstones or the criteria you use to to make yeah. that kind of a comparison. Um, I mean, in a way, to kind of circle back to that question is to really go to another part of the book, which in addition to Lauren Ballon, um, the other author who kind of helps to narrate our understanding um, in the book is Charles Mills, also the late Charles Mills, who sadly passed away too in the same year as, as Lauren Ballon. And I, was, and I was kind of in a dialogue with both of them over email. Um, and um, that dialogue, you know, kind of didn't come to, to fruition to, to where it might have been, sadly, because, because of their illnesses. Mm. But what, what Charles Mills wants to do, and uh, writing from an American context, um, one in which has this historical, you know, what he calls racial contract, 
in terms of you know the liberty that that came with um, came with the, uh, the creation of the republic also went hand in hand with the um, racial um, uh, disenfranchisement of, of African Americans. Um, what what Mills wants to do is say that actually one thing that the idea of justice should do is be about corrective justice. That is to say, it should it should try to correct what's been um, a past wrong um, so that it doesn't repeat itself in the present. Uh, and what he's doing there is, is trying to tell a story about how racism has had a particular role in shaping American society in a way in which challenges a lot of other justice thinking, particularly people like um, John Rawls, you know, famous book, Theory of Justice, um, has this kind of what's sometimes called deontological view, he kind of says, well, look, let's strip out all the context and think through thought experiments what an ideal society might be. Um, and what thinking through Charles Mills allows us to see is that actually there's a lot more sustained critical inquiry and reflection, I think, on race as a constituent of society in North America than there is uh, in the UK. That then has implications for analysis and, and precisely the criteria that we want to use to undertake an evaluation. Because if we did something like comparing uh, population figures in um, prisons, you know, the US would be much worse. But then the US has a particular context and a history in which the racialization of African Americans is, is constituent of that society. I mean, that's really the basis that and settler colonialism and the annihilation of, of uh, indigenous or native um, groups. The UK has a strange kind of, on the one hand, Atlantic slavery and then colonial um, kind of um, historical imperial governance structure, which then feeds back to, to the UK in terms of the movement of people as well as goods and goods and money. And so our kind of racialization of, of racial minorities has taken a slightly different, different form. But if we were to look at something which is presently the case, then, you know, if you think about the ways in which who gets to be a citizen is um, currently being mm -hmm. disputed in the UK, then I would say the UK fares less well. Uh, than the US. So if you think about something like um, the Borders Bill, the Nationality and Borders Bill, which is going through uh, Parliament right now, being ping-ponging ping -ponging between the House of Lords and, uh, and the Commons, you know, that potentially gives the executive, the Home Secretary, the power to deprive all racially minoritized Britons of their citizenship, so, you know, with, with relatively little um, oversight, you know, if at all. And it comes on the back of, you know, about 57,000 black and minority ethnic Britons having been deported or stripped of their rights, um, um, which came to light, of course, during the, the Windrush scandal. Uh, and then if you think about other things like the Police Crime and Sentencing Courts Bill, um, which is also in the, in the uh, going through Parliament at the moment, you know, that recognises, and the direct, and the words are specifically that, that they understand that there will be, I quote, indirect difference of treatment on the grounds of race. So they know that it will disproportionately impact, particularly uh, young black um, men, but they're still persevering with it. Um, and so I think that puts the UK in 
um, a potentially um, a worse um, a scenario um, than the US. But but those comparisons, I think, are, are, are difficult to make. I, I think that you need to think them through um, their respective histories and, and traditions, uh, but also to think through the ways in which there might be common common ways in which racialization happens in both contexts. So there might be shared racial logics, but actually maybe the racial projects are different. That is to say, the ways in which that logic turns into a, a wider um, program of, of disenfranchisement. So for example, in the US, in addition to the um, racialization of African-Americans from the out outset of what the US is as a republic, there's also been the annihilation of uh, of, of Native Americans, you know, mm -hmm. and the occupation of land and and so on, which it, which is different to the UK, you know, despite what what some people would like to believe. You know that that's not been the case uh, in in the UK. Um, there might be an analogy to be made with Ireland in that respect, but again, I think it's I think it's very different. Mm -hmm. um, there are a number of things, you know, in the book that I detail that I I do find quite shocking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I mean, actually, um, but sort of brings me on to, to 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 the next thing I really wanted to talk to you about, which is, as you say, that the the failures in achieving racial justice are numerous, and and I and I was interested to to ask if there was one area in particular that um, shocked or surprised you in your research, or that you feel is is least well known, and uh, that you'd like to share with us. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, we could we could talk about any any number of areas, really. I mean, I I, I do think there is. Um, evidence of advance in particular sectors as well as um, uh, regression um, or you know kind of a stalemate and, and regression but some things which really kind of punch through um, so take for example the the evidence of um, the incarceration or the detention of uh, of, of young black um, kids so I mean young 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 uh, black children you know age between 10 and 17 make up about what four percent of the entire population um, but they're four times you know more likely to be arrested than their white counterparts and they're nearly three times more likely to to receive a, a caution or or a custodial sentence so in in 2019 um, if you have a look at the um, youth justice statistics uh, for England, England and Wales, what you find is that the percentage of black children in custody is significantly increased to 28% of the entire population held in youth custody. Um, now, that's you know an extrapolation from only 4% of the population. They make up 28% of the youth custody population. And that compares um, with uh, about 15% a decade previously. So actually what's happening there is that um, in real time, it, it's got it's got significantly worse, and you know we're coming out, of course, a, a period of um, the implications of the the COVID pandemic and the, and the disparities. Where looking at some of our major you know major cities, um, take London. You know, London had uh, all manner of kind of profound um, ethnic and racial disparities. Uh, where um, where people um, of Pakistani, uh, Bangladeshi, um, mixed uh, groups, as well as uh, of course uh, black groups, were were you know in the region of four times as likely to die from COVID nineteen compared to to to, to compared to their white white counterparts, and it was a picture which had mirrored you know elsewhere that that there was decent data in the US, in Sweden, in Spain, uh, indeed in Scotland too. 
Um, and, it, it, you know, yeah, go on. No, no, no. I was, I was going to say it's one of the things, it's one of the, 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 the examples you give about how these things can't be seen in isolation as well. The, 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 the COVID situation, the, 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 the COVID statistics are indicative of something much broader than just, um, you know, that the, the situation yeah. around health. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, if you think about the, the, the COVID pandemic and the racial disparities within it, there's a way in which you can explain those outcomes by uncoupling them, um, uncoupling the physiological risks from their systemic exposure. So you can say, oh, well, you know, this has to do with chronic uh, conditions, underlying conditions, heart disease, diabetes, and so on. But actually, what you find is that when you control for those, they don't explain the disparities. The, the disparities are much, much better explained by, by um, the environmental and the social determinants of health. So the fact that black and ethnic minority groups are three times you know, more likely to be key workers, certainly in London, uh, where some of the biggest disparities were observed, that they're you know, five times more likely to be working in insecure food produ production. Um, uh, sectors that they're much more likely to be in in, um, in contact with children because they work in childcare. Um, they're three and a half times more likely to be working in health and social care. You know, those relatively um, low-paid um, but 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 core roles. You know, and therefore then they're, they're more likely to to live in um, overcrowded housing, overcrowded accommodation. You know, which. It, accommodation being expen as expensive as it is in London. So that increases the risks of transmissions within the household. And then you have this multi-generational multi um, multi um, impact. And, and that's something which I was struck that Doreen Lawrence, who undertook a review into the disparities, um, noted. And, you know, she talked at, at great length about how Black and Asian and and other minoritized people had been overexposed, they'd been underprotected, and they'd been stigmatized as well with that. And it was, I mean, I was especially moved by the fact in which she, she kind of asked us to kind of break a clear and tragic pattern. Um, and coming from Doreen Lawrence, Dave, Baroness Doreen Lawrence and, and her struggle um, mm. to bring institutional systemic racism to light, you know, it, that really kind of landed mm. with me. Um, the ways in which that the <laughs> impact of COVID-19, you know, wasn't random, it was foreseeable, it was inevitable in some respects, um, and ultimately reflected a great deal of known um, structural uh, inequality, uh, and I would say discrimination too. Um, so how we make sense of that and how we go forward with it, I think is something which has to be um, a real priority, I think, within within the policy process broadly conceived. Mm, mm, mm. I, I, I wonder if that is, um, you know, are there examples of success um, where that more kind of that that broader way of thinking about um, any given aspect of society has yeah. actually happened that you could that you could tell us about. Yeah, I, th I think there's lots and it has to do with people. It has to do with communities and it has to do with um, a kind of a shared sense of, of remaking something. So, you know, at local levels, you can point to lots of ways in which um, through um, kind of conscious anti-racist solidarity, the communities have, have, 
um, forged um, a much better space and be that organized around schools, be that organized uh, organized around health and social care, be that organized around, around youth services. Um, but, but beyond that, beyond that kind of local, beyond the city, you, you, might, you might think about the ways in which attitudes towards things like national identity have changed. I mean, I, I think it's a success that whatever else you think Britishness is today, it isn't the preserve of, of white Christians, that there's been a process of remaking that uh, in a way in which is inclusive and reflects the histories, the trajectories, uh, and the unfinished conversations, to quote Stuart Hall, of um, post-colonial minorities. And I think that will that will continue to be the case. Um, but I don't think that's been at the, um, at the um, you know, in, in the power of governments and so on. Um, often it's been forged against it. I mean, there are some exceptions. I thought that um, some of the um, ways in which um, the late 90s uh, offered a, 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 an opportunity to rethink um, national identities, to rethink collective membership, to rethink um, how you mobilize and make peace with a particular history um, to, uh, to, you know, to, to, to reconcile it with um, the um, constituent of a, of a country today were, were quite promising in those early years. Um, I mean, they've kind of pivoted back to this quite exclusive and reactionary and at times um, deeply racist way of thinking about common membership. Um, mm. But I think that's only sustainable as long as um, that people's voices are, are kept out of the public square. I think that um, some of the examples of um, the present and, and next generations in terms of um, intermarriage or, uh, or cohabiting, um, the way in which mixedness of the, of the racial and ethnic category is, you know, the fastest growing um, kind of um, uh, domain within the census. Um, I think the ways in which the, um, the cultural sector uh, and the creative industries um, kind of often are, a, are a, a way of thinking about what are the what are the symbolic parts of, of who we are and, and, and what we want to be? I think they're, you know, they're irrepressible, mm -hmm. quite frankly. Mm -hmm. But in addition to that, I also think that the ways in which minoritized groups have, have mobilized for, for recognition in the public square have, have agitated not only to bring attention to past and present injustice, but also thought to say, well, actually, here's a way in which we'd like to organize social and political life. And this isn't just um, coming from a kind of a traditional secular anti-racist perspective. This is actually coming often from uh, uh, um, a kind of um, a multi-faith perspective, thinking mm -hmm. about the ways in which we might organize uh, the representation of, of um, how we memorialize things in, in the public square in a way which kind of offers appropriate and adequate recognition of, of um, the multiple constituencies that make up what Britain is today. Mm -hmm. I, I, I sort of uh, being uh, as as the as the press is based in Bristol, I can't help but obviously think about the, um, you know, the, the, the pulling down of um, the statue of Colston and, and, and the renaming of, of parts of Bristol. I mean, obviously, as a as a city, it's 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 very much got a 
uh, a past that is heavily rooted in um yeah colonialism racism yeah yeah well. and I, I remember being because um, I did my PhD in Bristol and I remember walking past that statue often um every day in fact when I'd come up from uh, City Road um, down in St Paul's up to the university and um there are so many times that there was a public um conversation which was just falling on deaf ears really um, especially acute at the time of the bicentenary, the abolition, mm. where, you know, um, Bristolians, black Bristolians, but not only, you know, were saying, hey, look, it's an outrage to have this statue in this public space. It's not only an insult to us, it's an insult um, to, to those who, you know, we grieve and we remember and how can we make a better future when we're commemorating mm. um, this this part of our past not as something which should be known and understood for what it was but something which should be celebrated here um and not only of course the statue but then colston hall and and many of the other ways in which um uh, uh, the atlantic slave trade and, and empire more broadly leaves its imprint on the built environment and the infrastructure um in more than a symbolic sense actually and and what was interesting about that conversation then, and, and it remains true now, is that non, nobody wanted to um, forget the past. Everybody wants to remember it. They wanted to talk about it. They wanted to have it properly recognized. It wasn't about cancelling. It was about learning more. Uh, and with that learning comes implications. Um, and one of the implications was that, that it was um, it, it was just profoundly uh, morally um, unjust to, to commemorate this figure in a city. Um, and the fact that that was falling on deaf ears is illustrative of some of the systemic mm. challenges that um, however much people kind of make the argument and have it um, communicated in ways in which, you know, are seemingly um, appropriate that ultimately sometimes it requires direct action and that's precisely what what in the end occurred mm -hmm. i think this notion um that we sort of touched upon uh through this conversation of of, of silence and of not talking about it that is something again that you, that you speak to in, in in the book that there's um there's just a a silence or a non-acknowledgement about um the uh european colonial past and the the, the, the fact that the roots uh, are very much embedded in a, in a white christianity um and um uh, yeah I, I find that fascinating and I, and I actually wondered whether that wasn't also part of the difference perhaps between what we understand or perceive is happening say in north america versus what's happening over here because i think it feels to me as though there is um there's more conversation happening it's a more talked about um so it's so so you end up in that situation where you where it's easy to say oh there's a bigger problem over there well is there or is there a bigger conversation that yeah. enable you to be able to say that this is a problem this needs looking at this needs uh, addressing. Yeah. I think that's a really important point. I think that's a really important point. I mean, the chapter of the book um, where the challenge is to, to try to rethink common membership um, begins with the need to recognize, um, as, as other colleagues have said, I mean, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, people like Gaminda Bambra and other colleagues who have talked for a great deal of time about the ways in which the UK as a state kind of pivots 
almost um, without ceremony from being an empire to a state and suddenly we're a nation state. Well, hang on, you know, we were an empire and that's what made the nation state possible. But I suppose what I'm arguing is what's true of that is also true of <laughs> many, if not most, um, comparable European countries, um, except many of those um, had their empires, you know, on their doorstep rather mm -hmm. than um, uh, further away, which was the case with the UK, with the exception of Ireland, which I think is a slightly different case. Mm. So, um, first of all, just recognizing that then begins to explain, I think, to um, white majorities that there is an intimate connection between my forebears and, and your forebears. Mm. Um, and often it may have been, you know, literally the, the blood, sweat, toil, and tears of my forebears that, that helped generate the wealth of of this country mm -hmm. and if you can kind of make those connections and establish that as the, the the kind of historical fact that it is then it starts to undermine um the kind of um, exclusive nativism which seeks to deny not only kind of entry to material goods but also entry to, to symbolic mm -hmm. ways in which um, membership of britain or england or scotland or wales is currently being currently being configured uh, and to some extent that challenge within the book is a challenge to colleagues in nationalism studies in particular um, who have relatively little to say about race or the role or function of race within nation building um, partly because you know those canonical figures who have helped shape that way of understanding where nations come from, how they're connected to states, what that means for national identity, have largely been un uninterested in thinking through things like, um, well, what Charles Mills calls the racial contract, you know, how the very idea of the creation of a, of a state as a republic goes hand in hand with the um, oppression of uh, a racialized group that's helped to, you know, build that country from the outset and, and continues to. Um, or indeed how, you know, others talk about the racial state, you know, the ways in which um, the very membership of um, a given nation state, when it reflects purely the, the vision or the imagination or the history of, of the white majority necessarily goes hand in hand with the exclusion of everything that doesn't um, meet that criteria. So yeah, it's a challenge, I think, for nationalism to just try to get, get its head around the role of race within the making not only of, uh, of nations, but of states and of national identities more broadly. Um, and that's kind of an intellectual concern, but obviously it has, you know, this filter down to, to contemporary thinking of um, what are things like quote unquote British values, you know, um, at what point did these become quote unquote tolerant? You know, um, if you factor in the annihilation, the, the murder, the genocide, the appropriation of wealth that goes with empire, I mean, is that about tolerance or, or, or is that about something else? So um, including those within a, within a live story, with, within something which is dynamic, you know, it's not just backward looking, it's about recognizing the past so you can, so you can kind of face, um, um, understand the present and, and face the future. I think it, it's really necessary, um, but it's not something that we're present. You have a beautiful sentence at the, the beginning of the last chapter, 
uh, where you, you open it with the future of racism has a very long past, um, which I, uh, it, it, which, which in, in some senses brings me on to my last question. Um, again, sort of other things that you, you mentioned in the book. So the progress um, on racial justice has been so limited and failure so cyclical, to, to quote you. Um, and you talk about this wearying experience of racial battle fatigue, which underpins the pursuit of it. Um, and actually, you know, a lot of this conversation has has had a degree of optimism in it, I would say, in terms of how we have been talking. But but I, I'm really interested in what, how do we go forward from here? What are the actions that you feel need to be taken? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I try and pick up that point that that Baldwin makes, where he says that, you know, to accept your past, to accept your history, isn't the same thing as, as, as drowning in it. it. It's to learn how to use it. And so one of the things I think we need to be better able to do is, is recognise the implications of that past for the present, which I don't think we are doing at the moment. And when I say we, I don't actually mean, um, you know, people like me, uh, researchers or indeed anti, anti-racist activists and so on. I am really talking about the ways in which this is curated within um, school curricula, uh, the ways in which it is mobilised uh, a rhetorical level uh, in national political life, uh, and the ways in which it's something that becomes part of a of a media discourse. Because presently, um, history is, is used to exclude rather than you know expand um, and and include. I would argue, yeah. but I suppose this also kind of requires a will. Um, and you know, there's the parts in the book which draw on the work of Les Bach and you know his um, reference to Gramsci you know talks about um, kind of an, uh, a pessimism of, of the mind but an optimism of the will um, and you know there has to be be, be a will for this um, at the moment with this present administration um, I'm struggling to see how that's going to come um, from um, from government um, I'm struggling to see how they're going to be able to to cultivate something like a shared fate mm. where, you know, we are mutually um, mutually responsible for the welfare uh, of each other, because that needs to certainly do the first part of what um, uh, uh, of what um, Mills is trying to get us to do, which is um, the uh, the corrective justice is to recognise the past wrongs so that you can understand their present implications. Mm. Um, and my argument is that that has to be a future-oriented uh, thing too. But so if you look at something like the um, the ways in which the the UK government responded to some of the data which came out of the um, joint committee, uh, I think it was on the um, on the um, uh, Joint Committee of, of, of Human Rights, which was the um, Committee of, of Commons and, and, and the House of Lords, um, which identified a number of racial disparities which were particularly experienced uh, by, by black groups. Um, and on the section that had to do with policing, you know, the government turned around and effectively said, well, actually this is about um, a kind of a miscomprehension, uh, a sense in which people have um, a negative view of the police um, and that has a uh, leads to a perception problem 
And so it kind of shifts entirely the responsibility on, onto communities, onto individuals, rather than thinking through the structural uh, features of that. Um, and I suppose, you know, in the context in which there is um, quite a, a burgeoning kind of um, public sphere um, in which black and uh, minoritized groups are able to mobilize in terms of community representation, in terms of uh, media, in terms of um, social uh, and cultural services. And I, I think that conversation therefore um, comes from the ground up rather than from the top down. Mm. Um, and as I said at the beginning, you know, I am actually really quite optimistic about the, the contemporary generations of, of young people who are incredibly comfortable with the fact of difference, but also the implications that carries through for rethinking who and what we are and what we want to be. Mm. Um, that needs to be, you know, recognised and supported from um, structured power. Um, mm. But I don't think we're there yet. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much um, for your time today, Nassar. The um, Cruel Optimism of Racial Justice is published by Policy Press and is a brilliantly detailed, unswerving insight into how racism continues to function as part of our everyday landscape. <clears throat> There's nothing simple about the multi-temporal, integrated and multidisciplinary ways in which we need to approach the subject, but Mir's book skillfully helps us navigate these complexities whilst keeping us firmly grounded in the very human impact and cost of the lived realities of racism in our society today. Thank you.